So good evening and welcome to the LSE. Um, I'm delighted that you're all here this evening and you've decided to choose a rather pleasant London evening and a little bit of tennis that's going on right now to come and be with us instead. Um, and it's a, with sheer pleasure that I do welcome you here to the LSE. The LSE is, is in London. We are the London School of Economics and Political Science and London is absolutely central to our sense of self, uh, the type of research that we do and the type of engagement that we have. And the values of London and Londoners of openness, diversity, inclusiveness are absolutely core values for the LSE. We are, we are a global institution in a global city that also connects very firmly with our local, local community and local environment. Um, we have a working, we are a London employer, we're a London living wage employer. Uh, we have a core alumni group. In fact, one of our largest concentrations of alumni in any city is in London. Um, we have a significant proportion of our UK undergraduate students in particular uh, live in London, based in London. Uh, we do research activities in London. Um, and indeed, this evening's event is being hosted by various of our different research activities around the LSE, LSE London, LSE Cities, and the Institute of Public Affairs, which is soon to become the School of Public Policy, which works very closely with government in many different incarnations. So just in terms of Whitehall, Westminster, we have staff who are members of local councils, our staff are on boards of school governors, etc. And obviously we're also growing our estate, as are many universities across London. So we're a key part, as it were, of the fabric, the physical fabric of London, which is obviously the topics of uh, today's um, event. So it is with huge pleasure that I welcome you to the LSE. I'm delighted that Sadiq Khan, the London Mayor, has agreed to be with us this evening and to, to speak about um, growth and design um, within London. It's a hugely important topic, and I do hope that you enjoy the evening. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Julia. And uh, let me add my welcome uh, to you all. I'm Tony Travers from the um, Institute of Public Affairs in LSE London, but also working with LSE Cities tonight on bringing this, bringing this public lecture to the school. Uh, I should add, before I go any further, there's a hashtag, hashtag LSE Sadiq, uh, for Twitter users down the bottom there. And... <laughs> And before I go on, I just want to say a few words about uh, Sadiq Khan, about his first year or so as Mayor of London, and then what I'm going to do is to invite the Mayor to the lectern here to speak for about a quarter of an hour. He will then rejoin our panel, who will then uh, comment and discuss on, well, did he talk with him about what he's just said? And then after a while of that, we can open it for some questions from the audience, and including from some of the design advocates that are uh, part of the new good growth by design uh, policy. And by the way, I should add, before I forget, that this document will be available, will be copies given out at the door as you leave, and that's part of this evening as well. Now, just a few words about Sadiq Khan and uh, the last year in London. Uh, Sadiq Khan has been Mayor of London since May 2016. He's the third Mayor of London. He was previously MP for Tooting from 20, 2005 till he became mayor and was successively Minister for Community Cohesion and Minister for Transport 
when he was a minister, including having responsibility for Crossrail. He was the first Asian and the first Muslim to attend the British cabinet. On a personal note, I was happy to have chaired the London Finance Commission for him, which reported earlier this year, suggesting further devolution to London. In his 2016 Merrill Manifesto, he stated, and I quote, our family story, his family story, is one of how London has helped us to succeed, unquote. And this evening, he's going to speak about a part of the programme and allowing the city to flourish in future for its people and businesses for all of us. Now, during the first three sorry, the first year and three months as mayor, London has faced a series of unexpected and challenging issues. So for a start, just after the mayor took office in June last year, six weeks after the mayoral election, the UK voted to leave the European Union. London voted 60-40 the other way, the only region in England and Wales to do so. Subsequent change in national politics, that's my gentle way of saying the unexpected general election result and its fallout, has left the government by its own stated criteria in a less than strong position. This year we've seen three separate terrorist incidents at Westminster, at London Bridge and Finsbury Park. Now, though terrorism is not new to London, the challenge presented to the city and its emergency services and its people have been profound. Then on the 14th of June, the fire took place, there was a fire at Grenfell Tower in North Kensington, leading to a catastrophic loss of life, which prompted all of us, I think, to think anew about the way London works for different people in different places. But this evening is about the way the, mayor, about the, way the mayor's strategies and policy can shape London for all in the coming years. London's population is growing by about 100,000 a year. That means more houses, more everything, really, for the city, more infrastructure, and such growth does provide an opportunity, but it also provides a great challenge for the city's government, particularly for a mayor who wishes to improve quality of life. Design is a key element in the lived experience of everyone who has a residence or who works here. A number of the mayor's design advocates, as I said, are here in the audience this evening, and there will, will be an opportunity to question uh, the mayor about the policy after his speech. But ladies and gentlemen, can I introduce Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London. Can I, can I thank you, uh, Tony, for that uh, kind um, introduction? Hashtag LSC Sadiq. <laughs> can, can I just scotch the rumours before they begin? It was a demand I made before I agreed to do this. It wasn't. Um, you know, there's a, a couple of uh, iconic guides to London life that our city simply couldn't function without. The HZ, the Oyster Card, but then there's also the LSE's very own Professor Tony Travers. <laughs> he is the go-to person for me and my team, and it's fair to say that nobody alive today knows more about London governance or the politics of our city than Tony. And, by the way... He also knows where all the skeletons are buried, metaphorically and literally. <laughs> it's uh, great to be back at the uh, LSE. I'm really looking forward to the discussion with Sadie, uh, Jackie and uh, Ricky uh, later on. Although I went to a different London university, I have a personal connection to this place, LSE. Many of my friends and staff studied here, which, to be honest, they never stop bragging about. It's a pain. Stop it now. 
and I was uh, chair of the Fabian Society for a number of years, which uh, Beatrice Webb, one of the LSE's founders, of course, helped establish. I've also been inspired by LSE's uh, famous alumni who've gone on to great things in politics and public life, including Clem Attlee, JFK, and uh, Pierre Trudeau. And of course, not forgetting my personal uh, favourite, a man who received a master's and PhD in economics uh, right here, before going on to win the Nobel Prize for economics, then becoming president of the United States and during his second term solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, President Jed Bartlett. <laughs> when I was uh, first asked to uh, make this speech, a speech about good growth, I thought my team were winding me up. I mean, look at me. <laughs> if only I'd benefited from good growth. And on the face of it, the uh, topic I want to talk about today is not always seen as the most uh, exciting. It's not one that many politicians have made many keynote speeches about. I'm told that on hearing that I was given a speech on good growth, Jeremy Corbyn said, wow, I didn't know Sadiq had an allotment too. <laughs> but seriously... London is a city like no other, with a unique feel, shape, and skyline, constantly evolving and developing over the years through good times and bad, through peace, prosperity, and success. Fire, disease, and war, creating an extraordinary web of streets, squares, markets, parks, office buildings, and creative studios, from Regent's Park to Rye Lane, and from Lincoln's Inn Fields to Raynham Marshes. When you walk around London, you can literally see the layers of history. It was IMP, the famous award-winning architect, who said, you only have to cast your eyes on buildings to feel the presence of the past, the spirit of a place. They are the reflection of society. And in London, you feel that you're not just... Uh, through the, it's not, in London you feel this is not just through the change in architecture and the type of building materials used at different moments in time but through the rich mix of spaces and structures you find the iconic landmarks the proximity of social housing to luxury flats and expensive Georgian squares cultural and civic places incredible green spaces Highgate, Highgate and Blackheath's villagey feel and the West End's hustle and bustle, making London what it is today. And the built environment, the legacy of previous generations, still has a profound impact on Londoners today, on how and where we live, and on how and where we work, and on how and where we mix, and on how and where we integrate with one another. Throughout this evolution, London has seen waves of growth. Our surroundings reflect these past changes of rapid change. From the main roads that still follow the route of Roman roads 2,000 years later, to the layout of Georgian squares and Victorian terrorists. From the 20th century social housing and the enormous council estates built between the wars, to the modern day Docklands regeneration. 
And today, we face another wave of growth, the likes of which we've not seen for a century. So now it's our turn to write the next big chapter in London's history, a new vision for our city. And I'm determined we're going to get it right. And in my speech today, I set out how we're going to do just that. London's success means that more people want to live and work here. Our population is now 8.7 million, the highest it's ever been. By 2030, London's population will increase, as Tony said, by a further 1.5 million, 100,000 a year. And preparing to deal with such a level of growth is one of the biggest challenges of our time. One that has made all the harder after a failure to respond to the pressures of growth for decades. To meet this demand, at least 50,000 new homes need to be built and space for 46,000 new jobs provided each year. This is a mammoth task, but one I'm not shirking away from. I set this scene because we must understand the true scale of the challenge. But I don't, I don't come here with a pessimistic message. Far from it. Because I know meeting this challenge brings with it amazing opportunities. Decisions we make now over how we should grow our city will have a lasting impact for generations to come. And so we have an unprecedented opportunity ahead of us to shape the future of our city, not only in, in regard to the way it looks and feels, but in its character and how Londoners live prosperous and fulfilling lives. So how should we proceed? I'm the first to say that London is the greatest city in the world. I'm a Londoner, born and bred. My parents made their home here in the 1960s. I studied here, and I'm bringing up my family here. But I'm acutely aware that for all London's greatness, we must always learn from past mistakes. We don't want a repeat of the race to the bottom of living standards of Victorian industrialization. Neither do we want unsustainable sprawl like London's suburban expansion in the early 1900s, nor the town planning mistakes and large monoculture housing estates of the post-war period. And in recent years, too much focus has been dedicated to developing the high-price, high-rise central London market. These expensive developments have sometimes resulted in high-quality buildings, but the success rate has not been good enough. And too often, they haven't delivered the genuinely affordable homes ordinary Londoners desperately need. It's simply unacceptable that the percentage of affordable homes built in London was allowed to plummet over the last 10 years. You know, in 2007, a third of all new homes were affordable, already too low. But in the year before I became mayor, the percentage given permission was just 13.13%. At the same time, we've seen more and more vanity projects posing as infrastructure. And some development appears more about the potential nickname the building receives than the elegance of its form and whether it fits its surroundings. Allowing this kind of unbalanced, unfocused and unsustainable growth is leaving many Londoners feeling excluded and left behind. 
And what have, we, what have we been left with? A housing crisis with many Londoners unable to afford to uh, live or work here. A lack of investment in social infrastructure straining local services. And rapid gentrification of parts of London forcing out communities and cultural assets that make our city so special. All this leaving many Londoners with a feeling that society is becoming more unequal and less integrated. So it's clear to me we need a change of approach. That's why I'm calling for a new way of doing things, something I'm calling good growth. I want London to be a city that enables all Londoners to reach their full potential. A city that is socially, spatially, environmentally and economically inclusive. A city where growth brings the best out of existing places, bringing benefits to communities and where citizens are involved in the way their city changes. So good growth isn't about supporting growth at any cost. It's about working to rebalance development in London towards more genuinely affordable homes for working Londoners to buy and rent. And embracing London's current wave of population growth as an opportunity to grasp with both hands. An opportunity to deliver not only a more socially integrated and sustainable city, but a city with a world-class public realm. As Jane Jacobs, the noted author and the godmother of urban design, once said, Lively, diverse, intense cities contain the seeds of their own regeneration, with energy enough to carry over for problems and needs outside themselves. This is the London we need. We've seen examples of where good growth can also lead to a host of other benefits, where housing has been built in ways that encourage greater social integration amongst different communities and generations, resulting in healthier, happier, safer communities, where developments are delivered with transport links in mind, transforming areas, and where new affordable housing and social infrastructure is successfully coordinated. And we have some good examples in the pipeline, like Meridian Water in Enfield, which could deliver up to 10,000 new homes alongside a new cluster for the creative industries. Or in Thamesmead, where plans to build high-quality homes are mixed with new commercial and cultural facilities and enhance access to green space and transport. So, good growth has the potential to transform London. But I'm aware that to deliver these benefits, we need a strong plan for the whole city. So my new London plan, which will be published in draft later this year, will have good growth as its guiding principle. It will set out a more balanced approach with every area of London playing its part, and every community able to share in the fruits of development. It will encourage mixed-use development in well-connected places. It will ensure that as London develops, we keep our fantastic variety of places of work, our unique environment, and our great quality of life. It will support high densities in the right areas, but not at any cost. And it will take a more discerning approach to tall buildings. But let me just pause here for a moment on tall buildings because I know this is a contentious topic. I, I want to be clear. 
I'm not against new tall buildings in London. They can be very attractive, and we need them if we're to cope with a growing population. But every design must be judged on its merits. The skyline ultimately belongs to Londoners and future generations. And as mayor, I'm the guardian of that skyline on Londoners' behalf. Any proposed scheme that dramatically changes our skyline should expect the highest scrutiny and adhere to the most exacting standards. The way it looks, its impact on surrounding communities, and its safety measures, something that's of particular relevance after the, the, the horrible fire, the horrific fire at Grenfell Tower. So I'll always consider every proposal on merit and with an open mind, but I'm afraid while I'm mayor, the answer on tall buildings won't always be yes. On top of a new London plan, I'm also bringing forward a raft of new initiatives to help build a city for all Londoners, from redesigning our city around walking and cycling and increasing access to culture across London, to providing new funding for inclusive regeneration projects and transport schemes to unlock housing potential. But I know good growth in London can't be delivered by City Hall alone. We need your help. So today, I'm calling on everyone in this room and all of London's built environment sector to join us. Let's take collective responsibility for getting the next chapter in London's growth right. We all need to challenge ourselves to not only deliver the quantity of growth that London needs, but the quality Londoners deserve now and in the future. I know what I'm asking isn't always going to be easy. It will require exceptional standards of development. But luckily, and this is the point, Tony, where I shamelessly flatter you all, I have the most talented built environment sector at the disposal of any mayor. In London, we have extraordinary concentration of world-class expertise. Most of it, I'm reliably, reliably informed, is in this room. Many of the world's finest buildings and most iconic developments have their roots here. I want to harness this talent and to work towards making good design the rule, not the exception. Finding new ways to contribute your skills and ideas so that we can leave the lasting legacy we want across London. And to help us become the city the world looks to for inspiration and innovation. As part of this, I'm announcing today the launch of my Good Growth by Design program. This program sets out how to enhance the design of buildings and neighbourhoods for all Londoners, providing additional support for the design and planning activities across the GLA family. I'm also announcing the 50 new Mayor's Design Advocates who'll work with City Hall and councils. These advocates, half of whom are women and a quarter black, Asian, minority, ethnic, will provide a pool of talent to lead this new initiative. Unfortunately, I don't have time to go through all the details of the programme now, but essentially, it has six pillars. First, setting ambitious design standards. Second, applying these standards and undertaking rigorous design reviews. Third, building capacity by launching a new social enterprise that will place talented designers and planners in local authorities. This will plug the skills gap and create a sense of common endeavour in enhancing London's built environment. Fourth, supporting diversity. 
We'll be pushing the firms we commission to do much more to tackle the underrepresentation of women and minority groups in the built environment professions. We want a sector we can celebrate, but also one that looks like the city it serves. Fifth, using open procurement processes to seek the highest standards of public projects. And lastly, championing good growth ourselves, advocating best practice to support success across the sector. Let me uh, finish with this before we start the discussion. The position that I'm honoured to hold, the mayor of this great city, is a relatively young one. And as London takes on more responsibility and powers, the role will evolve. But in many ways, the position of mayor was made for tackling this very challenge, at unprecedented population growth and for making most of the opportunity it represents. Cities are becoming more important at taking on the challenges of the future, increasingly driving how we live, work and interact with each other. We can avoid the solid approach of Whitehall and work seamlessly across sectors to deliver good growth for London. We all know that good growth can be truly transformational, delivering a fairer, healthier, greener and more inclusive city. A city with a built environment for all Londoners. This is my vision for London. So I urge you to join me on this journey. Help me open this new chapter in our history and together let's truly shape the future of our city for generations to come. Thank you. Great. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Sadiq. Um, I'm now going to introduce uh, our panel for this evening, um, who are coming from that side to this side, left to right, right to left. Uh, Jackie Sadek, who is founder and is chief executive of UK Regeneration. Uh, from 2014 to 2016, she was advisor to Greg Clark, Minister for Cities, and then the Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government, and is the independent chair <clears throat> of a partnership bringing forward homes and jobs as a result of the investment into the high-speed high two interchange at Crewe. Uh, next in is uh, Ricky Burdett, my dear colleague, who is Professor of Urban Studies at the LSE and Director of LSE Cities in the Urban Age Programme. He was curator of the 2016 International Architecture Biennale in Venice and contributed to the United Nations Habitat 3 Conference on Sustainable Urbanisation in Quito. He was a member of the UK Government's uh, Independent Airports Commission and is involved in regeneration projects across, the Euro across Europe and the UK. And last but not least is... Uh, Sadie Morgan, who is founding director of a leading architectural practice, DRMM. She sits on numerous competition jury and advisory panels, is a commissioner for the National Infrastructure Commission, chairs the Independent Design Panel for High Speed 2, and in 2016 was made a commissioner of the Thames Estuary 2015 Growth Commission. So welcome all. And what we're going to do now is I'm going to open up with a question sort of to each of them, uh, hoping that uh, we can turn this into a bit of a discussion here on stage, and then after a while, a bigger discussion involving everybody in the audience as well. So, if I can begin uh, with you, Jackie. Um, a lot of capital that's necessary 
to bring about the kind of vision, the kind of future that we've just heard described, that capital will have to come from the private sector. Private developers will have to be corralled, managed, encouraged, incentivized, planned into changing behavior somewhat. Mm. That's a partnership between the public and the private sector. But, I mean, what, does, what do, you, in your experience, do private sector investors make of public sector planning and the process of planning, typically? I mean, is this something, given we're hearing about a change of gear in London tonight, what, what, what do they make of it and, and the, the efforts of those in power in London to use such well, Tony, I mean, there is a massive disconnect, and I think that people are quite fond of saying there's no silver bullets. It's actually incredibly hard to build capacity in the private sector. Now, I have to say, Mr. Mayor, you are to be so commended on this document. I mean, it is superb. It's a tour de force. And I think everybody in this room is going to leave cheering, and they're going to go home on their buses and tubes. You know, glue. it's fantastic. I think the elephant in the room, of course or possibly the elephant not in the room, is that you haven't got the house builders, or you're now going to say you're all here somewhere, but I can't see many house builders, institutional funders, or the sheer commercial end of the enterprise, which, frankly, is the tough nut to crack, you know. So very, very difficult. Now, I've been arguing since, because I'm a very old woman, and I've been arguing since 1999 and the Urban Task Force report, if any of you remember that, um, that the, the assertion that good design need not cost more, has never been proven. Never, never, to my knowledge, been proven. I've never seen case studies that set up the two things alongside good design versus bad design, that good design uh, could, could save you money or, is, or needn't cost you more money. And I think that's the essential nut we now have to crack. Now, you know, I've been arguing that for uh, many years. I've not seen anybody come forward with any of that. Sadie will tell us, and I'm hoping she's going to tell us in a moment, that's because the commercial end of the operation haven't been introduced to design at the right, in the right sort of way. All there's been really is bad practice out, of, out there, and there hasn't been the, the good collaboration. But actually, you know, uh, we look out there at some of the practice in the private sector, and the, particularly the volume house builders, and forgive me if any of you are here, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but we have a way to go before this agenda is accepted as, as, as mainstream. Now, you know, having said that, being a bit mean-spirited, and forgive me, uh, I want to go on and totally commend this idea of this thing, public practice, that is going to put um, designers, uh, architects and planners in to support uh, planning authorities. What a brilliant, brilliant idea that is. Uh, I feel that we've got to do the same thing for the planning profession that was done for the teachers perhaps 15 or 10 years ago, where we, frankly, we rehabilitated teaching as a profession. Planners are beleaguered. They are ground down. They are completely put upon. They're ageing. You know, they're, they're, they're exhausted. They're knackered. I mean, I'm, not, I'm looking at some of them out there, and they're all nodding away. I, you know, planners need some support now. And it isn't the planning system's fault that we're not delivering the homes that we need. We, yeah. we consented double the amount of homes that we needed in the UK last year than were built out. So it isn't the planning system's fault. I do think that planners need support, and I would commend this brilliant idea of public practice, which I understand was um, developed by one of your young entrepreneurial officers, who, um, I don't know what you're paying him, but it clearly is not enough. Uh, I, think the, um, I think that whole idea is totally on the money and absolutely captures the zeitgeist, and I would hope would be mirrored by stuff that's going on within CLG, 
who are, I know they're a bit distracted at the moment, what with everything else, but who are very adamant in their wish to support planners and the planning profession uh, with a lot of very senior appointments having gone in from Treasury and, from, from, and having been brought in from outside in order to try and support planning centrally uh, and, and, the, and the wish really to empower and, and, and support a sector that have been long put upon really. So well okay. done. So can I, can I ask then, responding to what Jackie said, Steve, I mean, you've been in office for just over a year, but you're a London MP and obviously London aware long before that. But what is it about the practice of um, planning, design, architecture in total that leads you to the conclusions that, by implication, Jackie's just said are so necessary? Firstly, can I say to all my friends, I didn't call you old. That was Jackie. I think <laughs> the many architects and planners are very young. But the, the, point, the serious point Jackie was making uh, was uh, we were discussing a number before I came on. So in the mid in the mid 1970s, 50% of architects worked in the public sector. 50%. So I asked the, I asked the, the panel before, have a guess how many architects uh, now work in the public sector? The answer is less, less than 1%. Less 1%. I'll also throw another scary number at you. How many major planning applications in London, these are major ones, how, what percentage don't have a design review undertaken in London? Major planning applications, more than 70%. Now, that's a problem for me, uh, not simply for the reasons I set out in my uh, speech, but actually there's a whole issue about, uh, it's not just architects, by the way, it's, uh, it's the urban design, it's engineering, it's construction, it's... Uh, community engagement, it's project management. This skill set has been lost. And actually, I don't blame the councils because what's happened is, uh, Jackie alluded to CLG, over the last six, seven years, and before then actually, councils have been hollowed out of resources. So most councils, not unreasonably, are having to make cuts in the number of experts, officers, inspectors, all the rest of it. And that hollowing out has led to, I think, a diminution of good design. Uh, I'm not saying corners have been cut or imagination has diminished because of, you know, uh, Machiavellian reasons, but it has happened. And uh, we've got to change that around. And we've set up in, in City Hall Homes for Londoners, working with developers. By the way, the, the caricature of developers all being nasty and greedy and stuff is unfair. I'm not saying you suggest that, but it's unfair. They, they, they see the benefits of good design. No, nobody wants a legacy of an ugly building. And the percentage of costs spent on consultants during a planning process is, 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 is complete construction, uh, less than 10%. Overall building costs, 0.6%. And so we've got to persuade developers it's in their interest. And by the way, the new London plan that's coming around the corner will be an incentive for them to get their act in order. You're saying, in effect, that planning permissions will become more difficult if they don't? You betcha. Right. Okay. Right. Can, I, can I just say, oh. this wonderful um, headline in the Estates Gazette, which you got on Friday, about the fact you've managed to drive up uh, social housing uh, pr proportions, percentage, I think is a cracking start. If you, can, if you can drill down on the private sector in exactly the same way, on quality, design quality, in exactly the same way you have done on social housing, I, I, I think you're really onto something. Sadie. Uh, we've heard, I mean... Jackie mentioned the um, <laughs> Urban Task Force in 1999, but even before that, you know, there was an interest, and actually Sadiq's mentioning of, I think when the boroughs were created, they all had to have a borough architect. So it means so the idea that you need to think about what buildings <coughs> look like and the areas around them and the way in which communities fit into them has evolved over time, and yet still, 
the implication of this document is that it's, it is nevertheless still difficult. It's nevertheless not the, the penny hasn't quite dropped. Is that true? Is that fair? I'm going to make you, rep- make you represent all of design here. <laughs> Do you know, the funniest thing is I was at an event the other day and I was wholly teased uh, by a quote that went up saying, government is finally taking design seriously. And I thought, good God, fantastic. Who is that? And it was me. And uh, and it was me (laughs) two years ago when I was appointed as the independent chair of the design panel for High Speed 2. And, uh, you know, anyone who knows me knows I'm a huge optimist. So forgive me uh, for not putting the poo-poo on everything. But I just think that, you know... First, the, thing, the first thing to say is design is not about aesthetics. Designers are problem solvers. And we are lateral thinkers and we come at things with a different perspective. And I think all for, the, you know, for however long I've been in the design industry, it's always been at the end that we are asked our opinion. So you know, what needs to happen, I think, is that the people who can imagine a future... The people who are, have the capacity and the ability to look at what you know, our built environment might need to be in 20, 30, 40 years' time. And, and that means not just the built environment, it means transport infrastructure, it means public place, it means all of the things that make our city great. You know, you need creative people right at the beginning of the process. You need us there at policy making. Government needs us around the table when they're making big strategic decisions. And I have to say that, you know, the fact that Demis and I sit on the National Infrastructure Commission gives me huge hope. Not, I shouldn't give you hope with me on the next. I mean, no, it, it, the fact that, that government is starting to ask creative people to give them a different perspective, one that just isn't just about money, that's about, you know, that's about looking at the world in a different way. That, I think that's what we need to do, and that's what's been missing all of these, all of this, these years. But in, in your experience, I mean, manufacturers have worked out they need design. You, I mean, manufacturers <laughs> use design all the time. They, hmm. lead, they lead their new goods with it, don't they? So why is it, do you think it's so much more difficult for government to realise that this kind of design, all-embracing all design, can lead to better impacts when people making cars and even lemon juice squeezers worked it out decades ago. I mean, how, yeah. how can it take so... Why is it so much more difficult with government? Well, I mean, the irony is, of course, we, we do... We are a net exporter of great designers. Yeah, I know, you know? we are, but, and, but, but, but for those things, not for government. Yeah, well, uh, you know, if you look everywhere in the world, all, all the great infrastructure projects, they're built, engineered, generally thought about by British, you know, talent. I don't, I don't know. I don't have the answer. I wish I okay. did. I think it's about advocacy. I think it's about actually um, the design industry and the uh, engineering industry and the architectural industry being much more vocal. And and as as a country, when we do fabulous things, you know, when we build sewers that are, you know, twice as large as they need Mm. to be 100 years ago, when we build, um, you know, these big infrastructure projects, Crossrail, I mean, my God, you know, I've never been so excited is to go down that tunnel it was extraordinary you know and we should be every single school child in the whole of london should go down those tunnels honest you know it would change completely change the way that you know our young people for for, for any young people here with permission when it's safe not just (laughs) (laughs) 
But you know, we just need to inspire. We need to. We need to. We need to have our voice heard better. And I think, as an industry, we just don't do that. Have I asked you the? the same question in reverse, really, which is, you know, as a politician, and I mean this as a compliment, as a trade politician, professional politician, I mean, politicians probably don't meet many designers, do they? We have career? to. Look, can I, can I do it? So, I'm not a designer, but if I surround myself with talented people, they've got the solution. I'll give you two examples. Designers have designed out the problem that we had when I was growing up of people nicking car stereos from cars, right? Designers were given a problem People are breaking windows, stealing car stereos. They, they designed a stereo that's in your dashboard. So if you break into the car, you can't pinch it. I'll give you another one. Crime. You can have estates that are designed that are high density, good quality, where there aren't blind spots for people to commit crime. And so you've got to involve designers at an early stage. And Jackie, by the way, the, the idea about the... Um, you mentioned we, I should reward and give a pay rise uh, to the person who designed uh, the, the public practice social enterprise. We pinched it from Teach First. And I, the idea was yeah. you get the most talented people to go into local authorities who are starved of resources to have that sort of buzz and the attitude. Brilliant. But don't forget diversity, because my big gripe is this. Whether you're a sports ma sporting manager, whether you're the chief constable of a police force, whether you're the mayor, whether you're interested in design, if the pool from which you're fishing is this small, don't be surprised if the people aren't as talented as if the pool is this big. And so we're going to have more women, more BAME, more working class people doing good design, because they live the experience we're trying to find the solutions to. And so, look, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm with Sadie. I'm an optimist. Right, it's good to have yeah, two of you two on. Of I'm, on I'm a natural on pessimist myself, but let's not go there. <laughs> Ricky, um, you've taken the urban age, LSE is urban age, around the world. You've studied a number of other cities. What do you make of the way in which governments in other cities, where they've done it well, what, they, what, are, what do they tell us in London? What do they tell us that's good? Well, first of all, let me, let me just pause on the fact that we had our mayor actually use the word spirit of place. That hasn't happened in London for a hell of a long time. We also have a mayor who actually has powers, which your counterpart in New York doesn't, to decide where the hell to put transport, lobby like hell with government, and develop a plan around that in terms of density, quality, and everything else. So, Tony, my first answer to your question is that actually London has at least the institutional mechanism to get things right. But then if I look at Vauxhall to Wandsworth, what happened? Right? I mean, many of us were involved in that process of, you know, with a good governance structure and good intentions where we've let things go. And I think what you're concerned about now is, is how, how perhaps we try and uh, address those issues. And I, I think if one reflects on what's happening in other cities, you could take New York as one example of a very strong grid, a very powerful piece of urban architecture, infrastructure, beautifully designed 200 years ago with a central park. In the end, in New York, everything goes. You can do what you want. There's this wonderful phrase, which most of your developers would love, uh, as of right. You, you can build as of right. You don't need a planner to tell you no or yes. Right? And that's because the, the structure of the city is so strong, it can actually uh, sort of deal with that. London is more delicate, and it's more organic. I think you, know, you could even say that London is messier. It doesn't have that certainty that Barcelona, Paris, or New York does. And I think we've got to be very careful, and I think the lessons of uh, seeing what's happened in parts of, I don't know, the Far East, where I've just come back from, Seoul, for example, 
or not to mention Latin American cities, where the biggest risk, and you've already alluded to it, is that inequality gets cast in stone. You know, poor people get pushed out or entrenched in. And I think that's your point, isn't it? That it's a, that is a real design issue. It's not just uh, aesthetics. It's much more complex than that. So I would have thought one of the things, going back to your point, Siddiq, and I'm interested in hearing you say more about that. If the spirit of place matters, and you have the power, effectively, you're not responsible for design in the boroughs. The boroughs have their own sort of uh, systems, of course, we know that, but you're going to empower them more. How does one square this circle, which we all worry about, of greater growth, therefore increased density, <coughs> but maintaining London, London's ness? Right? Because in the end, that's what you say you want to do this for generations. Not, hopefully you'll be re-elected, but in four years, three and a half years, there's not much you can actually do, but it will take 20, 30 years sure, to sure. do that. Also, it's a warning. We've got to look at what's happening in other parts of London, in East London, around those centers of densification which we're all in favor of, and it's not great public realm. Yeah. And so these are the issues that I'm concerned. So I think, Tony, that the, there are different models, and London mustn't copy other models, but how do you keep to this Londonness is important. Well, uh, Ricky, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping during my seven terms as mayor I can do a lot of the things that you're, uh, <laughs> you're talking about. But can, 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 I, say, can I just, just deal with the, the issue that you mentioned? Frankly speaking, I don't have all the powers that I need, and so it's not true to say uh, that, that I've got all the tools in the toolbox. I'll give you an example where I haven't a relation to infrastructure, and Tony alluded to Crossrail One. So when you look at Paris or New York, so I've studied other cities and how not to do things. Paris, deprived communities in the donut of Paris, no public transport links to the jobs. At New York, uh, the famous urban planner Moses, uh, great biography of him by uh, the same chap who wrote the biography of LBJ, Caro, uh, where he basically, because of his prejudices, had uh, public swimming pools with no transport links to black communities because he was a racist, basically. Um, and so that's the power negative no. of, uh, of bad uh, planning. But the problem is this, in relation to lack of powers, because of uh, centralization of our country, we are one of the most centralized countries in the world. When it comes to the infrastructure required to regenerate an area, uh, we need support from central government. Crossroll One, Tony alluded to me being a minister of Crossroll One. Crossroll One was innovative in a, in, a, in a whole host of ways, not just the great tunnels. It was funded a third by uh, London taxpayers, by the precept, a third by London businesses, and a third by uh, central government. I mean, just imagine if Manchester was told you were to pay, a, you know, two-thirds of a major influx project. We, but we took it, we swallowed, we swallowed the pill, and we've paid for it, and it's going to be fantastic. But actually, we need to be thinking now about Crossrail 2. So Crossrail 1 is east to west. What about Crossrail 2 from uh, southwest to northeast? What about the east of London that requires more river crossings, environmentally friendly river crossings, by the way, but also requires good public transport links, a DLR being extended there, uh, the extension of London Overground. With the best one in the world, we can't do it by ourselves, but I need those powers, that infrastructure, to support housing in that part of London, because housing that infrastructure leads to poor housing, deprived communities who are disconnected. And by the way, one of the joys of London, uh, and this is something that, that we're, we're in danger of losing, is cheek by jowl you have people who are from working-class backgrounds, poor Londoners living with people who are well off. You know, I was raised, as, you know, as, as many of you know, on a council estate. Some of you may not know, because I don't talk about it, but that was a bus driver. <laughs> <laughs> but what, one of the things, and this is, this, is, this is the worrying thing, 
about the last three weeks with the horrific fire at Grenfell Tower. What the fire has done, and, and put aside the mistakes made since the fire, what it's illustrated is we really are in 2017 a tale of two cities, where you've got people who are the poorest families you can imagine living in the fifth richest city in the world, in arguably the richest borough in the world. And that's why design and planning matters, because, you know, I'm in charge of this thing called the London Plan. The London Plan will be the document planners go to, developers go to in relation to what happens in the future. So a laissez-faire approach can lead to what I think is disaster. But actually a smart, savvy approach, working with design, working with central government, but also recognising that actually we need you guys to be advocates. Because, for example, uh, locally elected councillors may be risk-averse or giving permission to a good quality, high-density home in their area because some you know, neighbours don't want it in their backyard. Well, you as local residents you know, with some clout at elections can say to your councillor, you know what, councillor, we need these developments in our backyard. We need a combination of mid-rise and courtyards and good quality tall buildings to make sure we can meet the needs of our, of our children. And let me tell you why it's important. Look, by 2030, experts estimate by 2030, one out of three Londoners aged 30, one out of three will be still living with mum and dad. I love my daughters. <laughs> At some stage, they've got to leave. And it's really important we fix this housing crisis. It affects all of us. Nobody's unaffected by the housing crisis. Can can I, the only thing, oh, can I yeah, just raise, on, on the, you mentioned the tall buildings and you mentioned uh, density, and uh, you, know, you can have good buildings. I think the one thing to learn from the history of London is that we do medium height, high density, Very better good. than agreed. anyone agreed. else. Agreed. So Notting Hill, Earl's Court yeah. are the densest places in London and not necessarily 30, 40-story yeah, buildings. So, I think that's a lesson to be learned, which I think exactly this whole yeah. network of people that you're putting together can push but, through the system. But, Ricky, just to, to do that, though, you'd have to... I mean, I think when those areas were built, and I agree with you about their scale and density, but they were built at scale because at the time it was on large available sites. And the issue, I suppose, now is how to get, apart from places like Battersea, Park Battersea, uh, bigger areas where you can develop at medium to high density without having to put it all on one site. Let me do that. I know said he wants to. Let, let me do, let me, let me do that, that, that point first. So just to give you an idea of the potential levers that I have on your behalf, in, in my first of my seven mayoral terms, we will roughly spend £20 <laughs> billion pounds, uh, in relation to construction, public realm, transport infrastructure, uh, some of the TFL land we own, we're going to build on. So that gives us already the opportunity to do a lot of good, and, and the, uh, the, the design advocates have a huge role to play in relation to making sure their expertise and advice. And, and Ricky's right, some of the highest density homes are mid-rise in KNC, actually, in those parts of uh, London. So we've got land ourselves, we can build good quality, high density homes. But actually, when you speak to council leaders and councillors, they recognise there's, there's a crisis. They recognise that actually their voters, their constituents want good quality uh, homes. Now, the, the, the good news about the recent judgment, for those of you who, who are planners will know the recent Islington judgment in relation to land value uh, is very interesting. One of, the, one, of my, one of my reasons why I'm critical of Wadsworth Council in relation to them allowing the developers to reduce the amount of affordable homes in Batsy Power Station is, I think they were hoodwinked. I think developers are running rings around councils with the issue of viability. Right. So, so, so we've got to, we've got to, you know, 
And, and where, you've, where you've got the NPPF where it is, where you've got this happening, what I've, I've tried to be pragmatic, we've employed in City Hall viability experts, and my beef with Wandsworth is, is, Wandsworth is this, look, there was no reason for you to rush to uh, give the developers what they want, a reduction from 15% affordable homes to 9%, and that's the new definition of affordable homes, by the way, not the traditional one. They could have asked us for our help, we could have sent in our team to look at the numbers, to work out whether it was viable, because an FOI reveals they're making profits of 1.8 billion pounds. I'm not against profit, I'm not against developers making a living, but you know, it's a combination of the viability, will, experts will hopefully tease out the numbers to make sure they're accurate, but also, somebody who buys a land will now know the mayor's got a London plan that expects uh, the numbers of affordable homes to be between 35% and high, or higher, ambition is 50%, it is the long-term goal, so, uh, you know, somebody who studied basic law, as I did in the first year, you, you, I, I, don't, I can't do the Latin, but the English is buyer beware, <laughs> right? Buyer beware. And so a message to potential purchasers of land in London is be aware the new London plan will require you to build sufficient numbers of affordable homes. And if you're now aware of the new London plan coming around the corner, you buy a piece of land, don't come back to us and say it's not viable to build a decent number of affordable homes because we'll say hard luck. You were patiently waiting. No, I, well, I, now I, I feel like I'm going to ruin your thread because um, I wanted to go back to infrastructure and just say that you, um, in, in terms of you know being joined up, you're entirely right, and I think that we need to we need to think about that much harder. I hope you are given some comfort by the National Infrastructure's uh, um, uh, recent report uh, saying that you know. Crossrail uh, two needed to get on, and as well as the uh, as well as the um, bridges over the ten, so you know uh, the the crossings, whether whether or not they're under or over. So I think that there is a push from government to say we you know we understand that there has to be some kind of joined up between the ambition of putting housing down, putting new generation sites down, and and having the opportunity to get there, <laughs> get out or in. So, but but. The, the thing that I see day in day out is that there is no that there is relatively not there's, there's not much joined up thinking when it comes to um, you know the transport infrastructure, the planning, the ha you know the yeah, housing, right. and 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 that's something that I think we just have to th you, you have to get straight in there and do, and and everyone says yeah yeah no I agree <laughs> I agree and I'm like well why isn't the DCLG talking to the you know the, the, the um, DFT and why isn't you know it's kind of nuts. Let's, <laughs> so, let's let's use this as a prompt to open this out a bit. We're about half past seven, so um, I know there's a cluster of design advocates down here. Can I tempt one of them just to start us by? Right. <laughs> can we get a, a microphone to them? Stampede. Well, I'm going to take three. Just at remember, a time. we're on the same side, yeah. Take three at a time. I'll come to other parts of the audience later. So. Why don't we take, I can see one, two, three hands there together. So go for it, yeah. One, two, three. Hello, I'm Alison Brooks. I'm principal of Alison Brooks Architects. Um, it's fantastic that as mayor you see design as one of the major solutions to London's growth. Too often design is seen as an add-on or a luxury rather than a key to delivering quality of life, all aspects of life. But my question isn't about design, it's about the housing market and housing policy, as these subjects underlie a lot of my work as an architect. 
reporting from the front, so to speak. So lack of affordable market housing in London for young people and first-time buyers remains a huge problem. So what concerns me is the new rush towards build-to-rent or private rental sector, which I see as being at the expense of affordable sale housing supply. Young Londoners don't aspire to rent, they aspire to own. So it seems to me that every private rental sector flat that's built in London is one less flat on the London property market for sale. That flat will be owned in perpetuity by a private or institutional investor, not young people who want to work and settle in London. So would you be able to offer your view on this housing market trend, which seems to be reducing access to home ownership for young Londoners? Okay, and then directly in front of you, and then behind. Um, uh, thank you. Um, it was a really inspiring speech, Mr. Mayor. And um, I'm, uh, my name's, one of my hats is that I'm um, vice chair of the London School of Architecture. My name's Elsie Wiesu, and I'm an architect. Um, and we know um, from the few figures that we've got that there's an attrition rate of 55% between degree stage and master's stage for black and minority ethnic young people. Um, You talked about fishing from the best pool of talent, but that talent is being diminished by racism in architecture and construction, which means in turn that the diverse communities of London are not being served. So I think we should, in addition to affordable housing, we should be looking at the quality of housing and the right housing for the kind of communities the clients that we as architects see, seek to serve. So I'd be really grateful to hear your, um, your opinion on how we get out of this double bind. Okay, and then one behind. I've got a series of questions, but one behind. Uh, so I'm Wayne Hemingway, a partner at Hemingway Design. Um, first of all, can I just debunk the idea that we've never proved um, that bad design doesn't cost? Um, Commission for Architecture in a Built Environment, which was kind of decimated by the bonfire of the Quangos by this government seven years ago, had a, before it was decimated, had about 130 people who were, who were working on that, talented people, and were proving it. And, and the reports are still there. You can still look, look online and find it. And it was proven t- time and time again. Uh, can I, and then can I congratulate the idea, uh, Sadiq's idea, that, you know, to, to embed design into planning departments that have been, you know, kind of really, really hurt. Uh, not just planning departments, though, but the whole public sector, as we know. You know, some of, some, some of our councils have been decimated to the extent of 60% of their employees. And designers, as we, what, what designers do as we go around our lives is we, we spot things that are wrong. Uh, most of us are glass half empty. We... You know, we, we're not pessimists, we're optimists, but, and you, you can be glass half empty and, and be an optimist. And we see things all the time that, that, we, that we know is about improving things that matter in life. And I just want to give you some examples about things that are not about, that are about, that are about the built environment, but not are about, that, that are not about housing, but are about housing. Not, not, and are not, too, t- many, not too many examples. Okay. okay. So what are, what are we going to do about... I keep hearing all the time that London is overheated and full, and yet um, I spend 
from first light every morning running with my dog and, and, and I don't run around a park or along a river I, I, I pick areas so th- this last few weeks I've been running Brent, Hounslow um, Harrow uh, and, and all around the Acton area and London is full absolutely full of opportunity yep. but it's filthy um, I've never seen London looking so, look at the canals. It, once you get, once you're in central London, it's perfect. Sorry, I'll just, I will, okay, I will wrap very, up very now. Good, thank you. But, <laughs> Sorry. But, point but, is but just... it's the areas in between. And I can show you a picture of, uh, I can show you a picture of a street with one street, which has got four betting shops, two pawnbrokers, and two of those casino places in a row. That is it's, we've got to deal with things like that as well, because that affects quality of life. Sorry about going on for so long. <laughs> okay, and David? David Adjaye. Yes. That, so it's it's the, the, right. the chap at the back with the black jacket, David Adjaye, the knight of the realm. Or as his friends call him, Sir David. Yeah. <laughs> Sir David. He was another advocate. Thank you. Um, it's been amazing listening to this panel and listening to, to government talking about design, as we've all sort of acknowledged. Um, something that I, you know, want to also speak to, I'm one of your design advocates and I'm really honoured to be part of that panel, but something that I'd like to contribute to is that um, we have this issue in the built environment where young architects find it incredibly difficult to get into the opportunity that is being offered or being discussed. And it's to do with this notion that always comes up for them, which is to do with quality and equality. And how do we deal with the quality, equality issue in terms of young architects being able to be supported to get on to being part of this incredible housing that will be the landscape that is their landscape that they're going to inherit in the future? Yeah, right. Do you like to deal with it? I mean, I, I don't want to stop the other panellists saying something, but they mostly end at you, Siddi. Well, can, can I just... A, a couple of the questions were around uh, diversity, and obviously this, this is a, something I'm, I'm passionate about, but just to give you an idea of the scale of uh, the, the lack of the architecture world utilising talent, the percentage of architects who are men is 73%. The percentage of architects who are white is 93%. The percentage of architects who come from an advantageous socio-economic group is more than 98%. Now, whether you're a manager of a football team, whether you're the leader of a political party, whether you're the mayor who wants to see the best design in the world, clearly there's a possibility, just be generous, for, just be that some talented potential architects are not getting the chances that you guys talked about. And we're missing out on potentially great architects being nurtured, being fostered, becoming great architects. And also, David, you know this, and I don't embarrass you, many of our architects who are very talented have to go abroad to become inverted commas successful, and then they're recognized and come back here and get given work. So what can I do about it? So a number of things I can do about it. The social enterprise scheme we're setting up will be working with local authorities who are starved of the resources. Wayne talked about some of the numbers. Uh, and we'll, provide, we'll be providing at nominal cost the expertise, and we're going to micro-target talent in relation to women, working-class backgrounds, BAMEs, to make sure they ha- get the helping hand, which they need. At the end of the day, it's a helping hand, and you'll fly once you've had the opportunities to, to do that sort of stuff. I'm going to use procurement as a lever. So if you're one of the big guns bidding for work, quid pro quo, I want to know 
who you employ in percentage terms. Can you, do a, can you be mentoring a small firm? <coughs> can you have a partnership with a small firm? Or, as part of the deal, try and help uh, people who are underrepresented in the business? By the way, Sadie and I were talking, it's not just architects, urban design, project management, community engagement. This whole skill set, I think, doesn't, it doesn't have the diversity it should have to improve the quality across um, uh, our city. There are some people doing work, Architects for Change, the Stephen Lawrence Trust, uh, other membership and networks. We're, we're tapping them up and making sure we use their experiences to uh, improve. This. And, you know, by the way, for those who don't recognize or don't realize this, but the Mayor's Design Advocates uh, are receiving a, a paltry figure and are doing this uh, to help us out in poultry. I mean, they, they lose money when they support us, but they're committed so much to good quality design and nurturing the next generation and working with us uh, uh, to do that. And it's really important that we, uh, that we uh, do that. I think Wayne's answered a point raised earlier on about that, that Sadie referred to, which is, and I say this in a non-patronizing way, but designers think differently to the rest of us. You think laterally. You find solutions. I think, Wayne, where I think you didn't quite do justice is you don't simply identify the problem, you find a solution as well, uh, which is really important, which is what we need as politicians. Uh, preferably if they're cheap, it's nice. Um, but, you know, uh, there's solutions. And by the way, I'll tell you this. You can't always be successful. You know, sometimes you're going to fail. And I, as a politician, have got to give you the latitude to recognize you might fail. That's why the mayor's design advocates are so important. Uh, that, that we get design right. Because if you fail, I'm afraid the problem is a legacy of a building lasting decades, uh, which is all sorts of in inherent problems which you can't afford to fail. But you're right, Wayne. So when people say to me, why don't we build on the green belt? Why aren't we building on all this green belt that's un unnecessary? It may have been relevant in the 50s and stuff, the lungs of our city, but it's, we've got a housing crisis, we should be building on this green belt. Nonsense. There is so much land in London not being utilised. People call it brownfield sites. People you know, have other sorts of descriptions for it that we can be using sensibly to build good quality homes. And, and Wayne, you're right. A consequence of laissez-faire planning is betting shops, is you know, these casinos, is pawnbrokers, because local authorities uh, haven't got the confidence because of you know, the last number of years to make sure they've got a planning regime in place. So you know what? In this parade, in this block, we only have a maximum of one betting shop. Or in our town centre, for reasons we can appreciate, there'll be no new fast food chicken shops opening there to a school, or whatever, whatever. And that's, well, it's not us being a, a nanny state in the negative sense of the word, it's us recognising the sense of place, the sense of spirit, what sort of city, what sort of place we want to live in, where people live, work, play and study. We shouldn't be um, uh, embarrassed. Um, the final thing I want to say is, is this in relation to um, uh, going forward and the role of design going forward. The ambition is for design, designers to be involved at the pre-application stage, right? As the point Sadie made. You're, Before then. Well, at the conception <laughs> stage even, okay, at the conception stage. Uh, but the, because the point is this, what often happens is it's an afterthought. Because uh, an officer at a planning, local council or one of the city hall officials has raised the issue of poor design, you'll then try and tweak it, and it's too late. You're losing money. And so at an early stage, at the conception stage, you should be thinking about design, about the joined upness of infrastructure, yeah. of would I want to live there, what sort of environment it's going to be, you know, and it's really important. And, you know, I'll tell you this, you know, for example, one of the things I'm, my, one of my pet uh, uh, subjects is the issue of what, what is an essential public utility. We talk about water, gas, electric. Well, ultra-fast broadband 
is, an, is now an essential public utility? Are we thinking about what people, not just where they live, where they work, where they study, where they, where they have leisure as well? It's really important. And, and designers know all about that because some of them work from home. Yeah, so getting it, I mean, I think you're right. Getting it right at the beginning means you don't have to redo it. That's, all, that's what costs money. That's what design can, designers can save you doing. And the sell for rent, sell versus rent. Oh, sorry, so, so this is really important. So, so, so one of the things, that, so I gave you the, the, the statistic, which is a scary stat. So in the last year before I became mayor, the numbers of homes given permission, which were affordable, was 13%. And that's, by the way, in, in my view, a dodgy definition, 80% market value. So what we're doing, so we've changed the definition. When I talk about affordable homes, I link it to income not market value. So what we want to do is build more genuinely affordable homes. That's, that's the ambition. And, and so our, the, the long-term target, 50%. We can't do it overnight because we're working on the old London plan. I've published a draft SBG, which says, you know, we can, we can come to a deal, 35% genuinely affordable homes. What do I mean by genuinely affordable? Combination of social rent, council homes, London living rent, roughly speaking, a third of average earnings. That means you can put money aside to save for a deposit to fulfill the dream of owning your own home or shared ownership, part by part rent. For TFL land, we're bringing them forward quicker to make sure we can build genuinely affordable homes. But there is a role for uh, responsible landlords in the private sector. Why? Because at the moment in London, more than half of Londoners are renting. 70% of those who are renting pay more than half, sometimes up to two-thirds of their income in rent. They can never save uh, to the deposit to buy their own home unless they've got bank of mum and dad or a loved one passes away and leaves them uh, uh, some money for a uh, deposit. So I recognise uh, that it will take a number of years before we can build sufficient numbers of genuinely affordable homes. So I'm in favour of responsible landlords uh, providing security of tenure, uh, making sure rents only go up by inflation. In the meantime, we're naming and shaming bad landlords, getting rid of rogue landlords. I support councils being able to, able to licence landlords, because in the meantime, We've got to recognise that for the foreseeable future, people will need to rent the private sector. We must improve the quality of that private rent sector. Okay, now I want to take some more questions, and there's a hand there, and actually there's a clump of hands over there. So why don't I take... I'll come back to you, because you had your hand up early on. But um, a couple of hands in there, yeah. Pass the microphone. The woman... That's it. And then behind... Thank you very much. I'm Susanna Clark. I'm a councillor in Lewisham. And I've been seven years on the planning committee. I'm now chair of planning there and on strategic planning as well. And what I wanted to bring up was you've talked about actually having expertise in councils, but also there are the members. The officer side is the first port of call, but the members are the last port of call. And very often we pick up on the things that have been missed and we, we're there to scrutinise, but we're never given the tools to scrutinise. Yeah, yeah. I went on a planning committee with, with about two hours of training, and it's absolutely ludicrous. In fact, at a recent committee... Sorry, it wasn't recent. It was after the uh, last elections for councillors in our area. We had a planning committee meeting, and a lady walked out, and she said, well, some of those members had less idea than the people on the, probably at the bus stop. If you'd taken a selection from the bus stop, you might have got a better decision. Now, it was embarrassing, and I do feel that councillors should have much better training. Okay, that's great. Simple question. And, and but... just one last thing is the viability issue. Yes, we have a huge problem with working out what's okay. affordable in homes and what's not, and okay, how the viability's and worked out. The man behind you, I think. Hand behind you, more or less. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. Um, right. I just want to raise the issue of uh, housing being complementary but also having some like contradictions with providing infrastructure 
Um, you know, you have a responsibility for TfL uh, as well as meeting these housing targets, which I applaud. Um, but in order to deliver the scale of growth that we need, um, you maybe have a... Um, well, I just want to say, how is TfL going to find the money for the infrastructure we need going forward, um, namely Crossrail 2, if you're unlikely to make much money on land release? Um, so what is your perspective okay. on that? Good Are question. you going to try and invest okay. in transport to unlock development? or um, yeah. You can only use position? the money once, really, can't you? That's a very good point. Now, there's the man I said, yes, in the here, who I promised. Can we get the microphone down to this guy here? Well, I, now oh. I am a... All right, you go for it. Yes, well, we'll get to the microphone. Go on. You've, you've managed to get ahead. Go on, go Sorry. for it. Well, it's, I am a student of urban planning, and this question is related with my research. That's why I am insisting. But it's related with good, good growth, but not necessarily with design. But my question is, it has been argued that the most of the current industrial land use in London serve for the, its growing population. However, the City for All Londoners document and all the policies say that you need to release the surplus of industrial land. But um, how can you can make this, the policy sufficiently strong to avoid ambiguous interpretation about what is required now and what is the surplus of industrial land? If it's argued that the current industrial land mostly serve for the growing population. Okay, and this excellent. Now we've got industrial land. It's a very important point, very clearly put. Thank you. And then Chuck here again. Hi, my name is Nick Deswani. I'm a property developer. <laughs> we'll wait for that to sink in. <laughs> Your moment has come. Go for it. <laughs> Mr. Mayor, we're not all bad. Um, Mr. Mayor, you've positioned yourself as a champion of providing new housing. And as we all know, one essential element of new housing is land. Much is made of developers hoarding land, but we rarely hear of all the prime land that councils own and that's underutilized. Now, the government launched in 2014 a right to contest scheme, whereby the public could contest the use of government or council-owned land that has been empty or underused. In London, frankly, it's primarily underused. Since then, there has been only one direction to dispose in the entire country. One. I personally put in two applications, one with RBKC, which has been undecided, even though it's been over a year, one with Hammersmith and Fulham, which has been refused. Just refused, one line. What are you doing to force councils to release underutilized land? Okay, right, three, four very good, clear questions. Okay, well, the, the first and the fourth are, are a bit linked, which is, you know, the, the first question was about, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, the quality of councillors. And I'm quite old-fashioned, but I believe elections determine the councils elected. And it's for voters to decide on the calibre of councillors. But as you know, planning committees um, uh, are quasi-judicial, so there's no formal party whip. I sat on a planning committee for 12 years as a councillor in my spare time, I received not two hours' worth of training. I received no training at all. And what, what the, the thinking behind it is you rely upon your common sense and your knowledge of the community, uh, and you speak to residents and those affected by an application to assess whether it's going to be benefit the community, whether it's harmful to amenities and, and all the other issues that you uh, know about. One of my issues is 
not, not the quality of councillors. I think councillors, by and large, are, are very good and give up their, their, their time to serve their community. It's the advice you receive from officers, which, which is the issue, uh, which is why we introduced, for the first time ever, viability experts in City Hall, because you're bamboozled with viability assessments from developers. There's, there was one case at an information commissioner hearing where the person, basically the, the council and the developer wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't make public the uh, viability assessment, so the person went to the information commissioner. And it was discovered that the council didn't have the software to read the viability assessment from the developer. All right, and so, that, so that, that's why we introduced a team at City Hall now. What, we can, what I can't do is have a coup and take over councils. Uh, so it's about working with councils and using the bully pit of City Hall to try and convene and bring, bring councils uh, with me, of all parties, by the way. In London, there are 32 councils other than the City of London, uh, you know, 20 Labour, 11 Tory, one, one Lib Dem, and I work with all of them to try and improve the quality of decisions being uh, made. It's noteworthy, with a council election approaching, uh, planning committees tend to be less keen to give permission. And you can do a graph. In the year preceding the council election, for the last X years, there are fewer things given permission, which is no good for anybody and stuff. So we've got to think about how we improve it, but I'm not sure if the mayor who believes in devolution taking other controls from councillors is necessarily the uh, solution, but I'm more than happy to discuss uh, how we can you know, make, uh, you know, uh, make decisions uh, better. Uh, by the way, that's the big gripe from developers. The big gripe from developers is Council A, with the same scheme, could decide something very differently to Council B when the facts are very similar. And that leads to uncertainty, which is good for nobody. Sometimes there are particular reasons uh, and nuances between different areas, but often they're identical. And a developer, you know, far be it for me to be an advocate for a developer, but you can sympathise with the developer lacking certainty because they spent lots of money and time looking at a scheme and they're not sure where it's, uh, where it's going to be given a, a permission. Would you like call-in powers over the boroughs, over things like the use of land? I mean, you don't have call-over. You could have call-in powers, perhaps, I mean, or over the public sector more generally. So, so depending on the size. I mean, I think for small pieces of land, I think it's right and proper that locally the councillors should decide those. I, I never thought devolution is me taking powers from below, bringing them up. But in strategic sites, in, of sites of certain value, this clearly, this clearly, it clearly makes uh, sense. It's also an issue when there's a piece of land in two boroughs, I mean, Ricky talks about uh, Foxhall and Wandsworth. There was a recent one with the uh, sale of the Royal Mail in Camden, Islington, where you've got to be, and there's another one in relation to, it's, that happens quite common, and sometimes we can, I think there's a role for me to play uh, in City Hall being a coordinator or ringmaster in relation to getting the right uh, decision. The second question was a really uh, good question about how, how uh, I manage the competing interests. One is, uh, on your behalf, I'm the custodian of public land, surplus public land. On the other hand, it's my job to make sure we build uh, sufficient numbers of genuinely affordable homes. Now, let me be frank, just, just an observation, the previous guy's view was sell the surplus land to the highest bidder, right? Because the idea is you get the monies in, as Tony said, it's a one-time deal though, you get the monies in, which you can use to do whatever you want to do. But the problem is the land is gone. And because you want to maximise proceeds, you've sold it for big bucks, and then don't be surprised if the developer says, I can't afford to build affordable homes because it's not viable. And then we have this big argument about what's viable and stuff. And so that is short-term gain, money's to my coffers, long-term pain for Londoners. My view is actually we need to, we, we need to reach a compromise. So we sell the land. Uh, if sometimes we sell it to somebody to make sure we can fulfill my ambitions of half the homes being genuinely affordable. 
That could mean sometimes I, I don't sell it, I keep the freehold, work with the developer to build a combination of affordable homes, 50%, market value homes, so I have a revenue stream coming in, we own the freehold, but I've got good for you in perpetuity for affordable homes. Other, other times I can sell the land if I, and I'll use the proceeds, I'll ring mark them for building affordable homes. And so I, I think that's a virtuous circle. Uh, and by the way, I'm the first mayor in the history of TfL to reduce operating costs. First time in 17 years because I've always said TfL is good, but it's flabby. So by reducing the amount of people earning more than 100 grand, by making it more efficient, by merging functions of TfL, uh, we can both freeze TfL fares, but also get maximum value for the surplus land I hold on your behalf. Because once I've sold it, it's gone. It's gone. That's, yeah. So I hope, hope you'll agree that my compromise is the right way uh, forward with surplus uh, public land. On, on the issue of um, surplus industrial land, look, the big issue here is the government, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, which is unlike me. <laughs> but the government a few years ago said, we're in favor of permitted development. And what that basically means for those non-planning experts is where there is a piece of land that was previously industrial, um, uh, office blocks, we will allow a developer to turn those homes, I'm, I'm, for, for sake of brevity, just make it explain the shorthand version, for the purposes of building more homes, allow a developer to have permitted development to turn those office blocks into residential without the need to go through a planning application process. Now, there are a number of, there are a number of flaws with uh, that in practice. One is a planning committee council has no real control over design over making sure the quality is good, making sure we have a sufficient number of affordable homes, but also over a period of time, we're losing precious industrial space. Where are the artists going to work? Where are the studios for the architects? Where are the theatres going to go? Where's the office block going to go? Where's the industrial land needed to make, provide the jobs? So if you remember, the start I gave you is we need to each year build 50,000 homes but 45,000 places of work. And so, as far as I'm concerned, you know, we need to have proper controls over industrial land. And so what I'm saying to councils, again, I can't do this, lack of powers, is think about using what's called Article 4 directions. That will give you some control over the land. Sometimes surplus industrial land may be appropriate for housing, but we need that control and the accountability. Because if we're not careful, some developers, and all are as fantastic as the developer over here, We'll, we'll turn uh, you know, an industrial land, surplus office blocks, into poor quality housing. And it's, uh, you know, once it's gone, it's uh, gone. It's not going to go back the other way. And so one of the things we're doing with the London Plan is thinking about where people live, work, play, and study. For example, can the planning gain be theatres? Can the planning gain be uh, live workspaces, artist studios, uh, subsidised um, uh, business units, uh, all sorts of things we need as a thriving uh, city? And the answer to the question uh, for the developer about the issue of um, uh, council-owned uh, uh, land, you know, I think most councils, when you speak to council leaders and, and office, uh, 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 you know, privately, uh, they recognise there's a need to make sure they, they maximise the land they own. No council wants to sit on land that's just sitting there not being uh, used. And, you know, but it, go, it goes down to you know, juggling so many balls, having lost half your funding over the last six, seven years, sometimes it gets neglected. Uh, and, but I, I would say this, I mean, I'm all in favour of there being proper processes, so, you know, often a conversation with a council is, is, you know, is a good start. I can't give an example of the particular two councils you uh, refer to, but I'm not in favour of sort of a carte, carte blanche, you know, public land being forced to be used for a cause 
whether the council's got a good reason to hold it back. It could be for a school, it could be for a facility for the community, it could be for affordable housing, and they're waiting for um, a cash import. You'll, be, you'll know, Tony, most councils can't borrow to build. Most councils can't invest in you know, refurbing their, their homes, and sometimes they're waiting for someone to come along and tell them. Okay, now we're going to finish in about three minutes, but I haven't taken any questions from the balcony, and I feel rather guilty about that. So I can see a hand there, long arm. Congratulations. And Thank one you. woman, a uh, person, actually, I can't tell your gender, there in the very middle. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. It's the lighting. It's not my eyesight. Or you. Yep. Hello. Uh, I'm a musician who's been living in East London uh, since 2005, and I was very honoured uh, to be part of your London is Open campaign. I was very proud to represent London at the German, as a German artist in the British House in the Olympics uh, just a month after the Brexit referendum. Thank you for that opportunity. I live in a creative community in Hackneywick, um, which is an absolutely unique area in London, the biggest accumulation of artists in Europe. Um, and I know that you're acknowledging that the creative industries are essential for London and that you're setting up these new creative uh, clusters um, and creative enterprise zones, mostly at the fringes of London. Um, my question is, what do you do to safeguard existing creative communities um, for example, um, affordable work and maker spaces um, or having a viable live-work policy that enables uh, artists to live and work in the same place. Um, in Hackneywick, the LLEC is unfortunately under your watch doing exactly the opposite um, and actively destroying um, some of the community by building a road um, through our community centre, um, ignoring the local objections. Um, Follow-up question is... Um, well, not too long because sure. we are running over time. Go on. Thank you. Can you, very, thank you very much. Sorry to cut you off. And then the person here in the very front, in the middle, down, down the front here. Sorry, whoever that was. Sorry, oh, I'll come back to you, but do it very short and sharp, can you, these two? Uh, we've been talking about a good, good growth by design. My question is about the use of the word good. Despite having had the best intentions, we've seen urban design approaches in the past fail disastrously. Uh, one case is Corbusier and the modernists. Uh, my question to you, Mr. Mayor and Professor Burdett, is do we still rely on design as an intuitive process towards a good, quote-unquote, goal? Or do we have the means and methods for design as a science-based or an evidence-based approach? Some of the methods which you described in a 1987 paper, Creating Life, Professor Burdett? Okay, well, I'll get Ricky to defend Le Corbusier, which is good. All right, we'll take that one at the back. I'll save you that one. You don't mind? You okay, thank you very much for your, for your talk. I'm a, I am an international student, and uh, I, want to, uh, I wish to raise a question about the public transport. I have been in London, for the, in this city, in less than one year, uh, comparing with others in this hall. My experience is less. But one thing that allows me is, when I went to the tube, I found that there are certain stations that I can find the elevator. So one day I went to I went to ask one employee in the in the tube station and I asked it how about the disabilities how can they assess the, the transport and uh, the this guy's answer to me is very simple he said definitely not they cannot assess the tube so I I'm aware of that um, the in the in the bus bus system the the, the facilities for the disabilities is very well but. Uh, I wish to raise a question uh, in your, sure, in sure. your okay. design, of okay. the, in your vision of the London girls by the design, which question. is, uh, sorry, uh, is there any <laughs> policies that will increase okay. and improve the tube system? Thank you. Very good. Good question to end on. We haven't touched on that one at all. Right. Ricky, I'm going to ask you to do local Corbusier. Yeah, Ricky, you get the half a minute. <clears throat> 
I think the one thing that we've uh, lost the ability to really get right, and I think that is at the heart of the question, is the space between buildings. Mm -hmm. And I think the 50 people sitting here are going to make sure we get it right. Good. No pressure. Right. Come back to me. Yeah, can, can I do the, uh, the, two, the two questions that, I, that I've got to answer? First, in relation to the point about access to the tubes, I mean, just to give you an idea of the reason why many of our tube stations, we've got about 275, and only about 75 are accessible step-free access, is because many of them were built very, very deep in the Victorian times when it wasn't an issue that was, was thought about by the then designers in relation to the London Underground. So we've got the biggest ever investment over the next four years of step-free access. By the end of term one of my seven terms, uh, more, we'll, get to, we'll get to 100 stations being step-free. And by the way, something Wayne said tells you how we're going to do it. Because basically, there was a station about two years ago where Tierfield said no to request to make it step-free. Uh, because the elevator was going to be going upwards uh, vertically. And designers said, actually, you can do it uh, um, going sideways, the sort of, you know, skiing, what they call it, the skiing elevator, you know, the sort of sideways uh, lift, uh, which is a lot cheaper, and it meant that they've now got step-free access using the same model going up that way, but it's a lift, sort of going up that way. Um, a fraction of the cost, and that station now is step-free access. An idea, an example of designers saving money, and providing a solution to the issue of uh, step-free access. So because I've announced a big package of step-free access stations, I'm hoping that because of manufacturers, innovators thinking, you know what, there's some money to be made here. Let's come with solutions to as many stations as we can. The certainty of knowing that will lead to, I'm hoping, to innovation and more Londoners having access to uh, public transport, which is what it should be. The good news is, cross roll one, all 40 stations, completely accessible. London Overground, accessible. Our buses, the most accessible in the world. Black taxis, the most accessible of any taxi system in the world. But you're right, it's not, it can't be right. In 2017, so many of our state underground stations are not step-free access, but we're dealing with that. And designers are one way we're going to get there sooner rather than later. The, the other question asked by the Londoner, and by the way, so you're a Londoner, uh, even though you're originally from Germany, uh, is because, uh, this, listen, the nighttime economy is crucial for us. And the issue you raised about, um, uh, you know, artists live workspace, You'll be pleased to know, not only did we manage to start the night tube uh, last year, London Overground will have the, the, the night overground coming to your part of London before the end of uh, this year, because I recognise that actually how we live as a city involves nightlife, culture, and so we've got a big plan to make sure we stop the numbers of you know, live music venues and nightclubs closing down. And one, one way is planning. So if you're, let me tell you why, if you are somebody who owns a freehold property that's currently used as a, a live music venue or a nightclub. And uh, this developer comes along and says, you know what, I'll give you this much money to sell the land to me because I can turn it into luxury flats. You're only making X pounds a year in rent from a live music venue or a, a nightclub, but you're making X times a thousand by selling it to this guy. He will then buy that land off you uh, turn it into luxury flats, make lots of profit. But we've all lost out on a live music venue and uh, somewhere to go for a good time out. So how do we, why can't we use planning to say to somebody like this guy, the developer, there's got to be a very, very, very good reason if you're going to change of use from what is a, a, a place that people enjoy in relation to entertainment to something that's uh, residential. And by the way, if somebody else comes along and builds a block of flats next to you, rather than you the owner of the nightclub who makes very little profits, having to pay for your property to be insulated for noise, 
Well, the developer who's building the private flats pay for noise insulation on their block of flats, so you don't have to uh, lose out in relation to uh, noise insulation. It's called the agent of uh, change principle. They use it in uh, South Wales in Australia. It works uh, pretty well. And that's my point about being joined up in relation to being the mayor. It can't just be a solid approach. It's using our experiences of culture, the importance of nightlife and culture to us as Londoners who enjoy London, that sense of place that I talked about, um, uh, that, that Jacob talked about many, many years ago. And so we're doing lots of work in relation to the planning game being on a development. Rather than somebody building 400 units of housing, which is not really a community, think about building homes, but also a community space, a hub where you can meet. In the olden days, it'd be a pub or the post office. What is the new community hub? How do we build a social hub with social bridges so we can get to know our neighbours? We, we can spend time with our neighbours. And that's where the designers come in. In previous years, as Ricky said, they were mid-rise buildings with courtyards. High-density homes are a place for people to mix and mingle. What is the solution in the 21st century? I've not got the answers. Those 50 people they have. We need to finish here. I'll just make a point there. In the matter of a way of seeing how protecting certain kind of buildings has an economic and cultural and social impact is the listing of theatres in West End, without which, if they'd never been listed, they'd all have been turned into something else by now, but because they weren't listed, they're a billion-pound-a-year, largely export business, which is a remarkable way in which controlling building use can have a much, much bigger effect, and it does beg the question of how far that logic can be extended. Anyway, uh, I'm going to embarrass the design champions now because they're all listed in this building, but don't worry about it. Many of them are in the audience. Can I just ask you to show of hands? It doesn't embarrass everybody. There's stand a, up. There's a cluster. Oh, stand up. All right. No, Mr. Jack, thank you. There we are. What are they for? Right, it'll be in the document that you're going to be able to read on the way out. Everybody's going to get a copy of the document. They're going to improve design in London, we hope, and that's for the future. Anyway, let me just say uh, two or three other things before we all leave. Um, it's been a great evening for the school, for the LSE. We've had an evening of design and architecture discussed here for the city in which the school is based, as Julia said earlier on in a social science institution, and, you know, Ricky and LSE cities have long been at the school in an attempt to bring social science and uh, architecture and design together, and this evening is a fine example of how we can at least act as a, a, a development vehicle for that. Ricky and I first met on a personal basis, actually, when he was running the Architecture Foundation and held big debates at the Central Hall in Westminster, before there was a mayor, in part to lobby for the creation of the office of mayor. I've always been in favour of mayors, not everybody else is, but I think that what we can see in an event of this kind is how the office of mayor can allow a debate to take place which would otherwise not take place. And I personally am glad that this now exists for Manchester, Birmingham, uh, Liverpool and the other city regions who will now have their own opportunity uh, to do this. So... Uh, that's just by way of a bit of context for the rest of the country. We are a London school, but we're also a United Kingdom and World school. So we must think of them too. Anyway, my real point in uh, winding up for this evening is to thank Sadiq Khan, uh, not only for coming here and answering all these questions and 
discussing with all of us this evening, but for facilitating, with others here I can see gathered in the front row, the production of this uh, excellent new book, which as I say will be available on the way out, and otherwise just to thank you for coming here this evening and for answering so many of our questions about the future of the city 